decades of ideological divisions have often left Iran isolated on the world stage. Now frustrated and perceived as unpredictable, global hostilities are escalating. The already difficult relationship between the US and Iran has become even more tense. US President Donald Trump says Tehran, quote, better be careful, but Iran has a warning of its own. Just days after President Trump announced that he'd called off military strikes on Iran with only minutes to spare, came a warning that Washington was not backing down. Iran responded by breaching the limits placed on its nuclear activities. Neither Iran nor any other hostile actor should mistake U.S. prudence for weakness. You're listening to Throughline from NPR. Where we go back in time to understand the present. Hey, I'm Ramtin Arablouei. I'm Rand Abdel-Fattah. And on this episode, 40 years of U.S.-Iran hostility. If you heard our episode last week, you know that the U.S. and Iran first became politically intertwined in 1953. That's the year the U.S. helped overthrow the Democratic Prime Minister of Iran, Mohammad Mossadegh. Now, fast forward 26 years to 1979. The secular Shah the U.S. put in place after the coup in 1953 was suddenly facing a major crisis. An Islamic revolution. For the last seven days, Tehran and other cities have seen violent clashes between troops and demonstrators hitting the soldiers with rocks and homemade petrol bombs. Hundreds of thousands of protesters took to the streets. Inevitably, the result is massacre. The Shah was forced to flee Iran, and a new leader, a Muslim cleric named Ayatollah Khomeini, Ayatollah Khomeini took power. Returns to a country teetering on the brink of civil war. The crowd chanted, Allahu Akbar, God is great, and raced along with the motorcade trying to get a glimpse of the Ayatollah. And this began a new era in U.S.-Iran relations. In an obvious reference to the United States, he said, foreign advisors have ruined our culture and have taken our oil. And so in the course of months, Iran went from one of America's best allies to one of America's worst adversaries. Not long after the revolution, Iran did something that solidified its new place as an American adversary. The American embassy in Tehran is in the hands of Muslim students tonight. Spurred on by an anti-American speech by the Ayatollah Khomeini, they stormed the embassy, fought the Marine Guards for three hours, overpowered them, and took dozens of American hostages. Some 60 Americans, including our fellow citizen whom you just saw bound and blindfolded, are now beginning their sixth day of captivity inside the U.S. embassy in Tehran. The U.S. and Iran are still pretty much in that place severed ties and sanctions. Over the past 40 years, this ongoing antagonism between the two countries has led to violent, even deadly results. In this episode, we're going to explore the direct military confrontations, the covert battles, and the 21st century cyber war between them. Support for NPR and the following message come from American Express. You've got big ideas for your business, but figuring out how to make them happen can be a real challenge. Well, 
The answer may be as simple as American Express Financing Solutions. They have over 4,000 specialists who can help find the right solution for your business. Chat with them today to see if you're eligible so you can get your plans up and running. The powerful backing of American Express. Don't do business without it. Terms apply. We spend millions of hours and billions of dollars on video games. But can consoles still compete with the next level of streaming and subscriber services? I'm Joshua Johnson. Subscribe to 1A on NPR as we consider the future of gaming. Iraq claims to have carried out more than 130 air raids yesterday and to have shot down two Iranian jets. Iraq's Saddam Hussein has been active in honoring his army's field commanders whose string of recent military triumphs tilted the war decisively in Baghdad's favor. It was Saddam Hussein who declared, whoever climbs over our fence, we shall climb over his roof. The Iran-Iraq war was one of the bloodiest wars of the second half of the 20th century. When it was over after eight years, there was over a million casualties, Iranian and Iraqi casualties. Relations between Iran and Iraq worsened when the Ayatollahs took over. The Iraqis claimed that the Iranians were refusing to implement border agreements, and the first skirmishes broke out. Iraq invaded Iran on land, and they met with some initial success, especially in the southwest, which was the oil-producing region of Iran. But very quickly, the war effort bogged down, and by 1982, Iran had succeeded in expelling Iraqi forces out of Iran. And it looked like momentum was working against um, Iraq in the long term. Iran has a much larger population, larger territorial base. Uh, so there were fears on the Iraqi side that eventually if the war dragged on, they would lose. So they tried to escalate and expand the war to include economic warfare. So they targeted um, Iran's oil industry. Iran responded in kind and started attacking ships in the Gulf that were going to pick up oil from other Arab countries that were allied to Iraq and providing financial and other help to Iraq as part of its war effort against Iran. For both countries, oil is the lifeblood of their economy. And so they're trying to sink one another's oil tankers to weaken one another economically. Um, so they attacked using aircraft, helicopters, fixed-wing aircraft, and they also attacked using small boats. The small boats very often would have machine guns, rocket-propelled grenades, or small diameter rockets, 107-millimeter rockets. So they would pull up in front of um, a ship uh, going through the Gulf. Um, they would set up on a line in front of the ship's line of movement. And as the ship passed them, they would open fire and rake the hull. And sometimes they would shoot at the bridge where the, the crew was located. An oil tanker runs the gauntlet of air attacks in the Gulf War. Um, now the ships, because they are very large tankers and were often double hull, the damage did not uh, cause uh, these ships to sink. Um, and they were able to continue, you know, with their mission, but it, it, it imposed costs. It was dangerous for the crews. And that area where Iran and Iraq were fighting, Strait of Hormuz, is an incredibly 
crucial geoeconomic chokehold. Once through the entrance, the Straits of Hormuz, the oil tankers face a problem, regardless of their destination. On any given day, 20 to 40 percent of the world's oil passes through the Strait of Hormuz. And at its narrowest point, it's about 20 miles wide. What's happening is that the war on land between Iran and Iraq is spilling over into the sea, with Western tankers being the sitting targets for both sides. The world cared about what was happening with these tanker wars because it was affecting um, the price of gasoline throughout the world. It was absolutely crucial to the fate of the global economy. In 1986-1987, Iran intensified its attacks on Kuwaiti tankers in, in particular. Kuwait was playing an especially important role in the war as a country that was providing support to Iraq, financial and otherwise, providing loans. Um, they had been asking the United States about the idea of perhaps providing um, escort for their tankers so that they wouldn't be attacked. And at first we didn't respond with enthusiasm. So the Kuwaitis went to the Russians and the Russians responded almost immediately that they'd be willing to do so. When we heard about that, our response was, well, we're potentially yielding the playing field in the Gulf to the Russians. And within the context of great power competition during the Cold War, the relationship was seen as a zero-sum game, so that's when the United States got itself involved. From ABC, this is World News Tonight with Peter Jennings. Good evening. That was an American flag on the back of that ship, and we begin this evening in what is surely the world's most dangerous body of water, the Persian Gulf. Tonight, the United States actually put its own flag on Kuwaiti tankers as a, as a way of kind of deterring Iran from continuing these attacks. So we were kind of, in, in effect, protecting our own ships at sea. We set up um, an arrangement whereby we would have a convoy system where we'd pick up Kuwaiti tankers outside the, the entrance to the Persian Gulf and escort them for about a day or two until they reached Kuwait, drop them off, and then we would kind of go back and, you know, escort more ships coming in. And so the United States embarks on a Mideast mission which is haunted by one question. Will the Iranians try to attack the Kuwaiti ships now that they are technically American? It, it wasn't commonly done, and in fact, it was very controversial. Members of Congress were openly questioning, why are we doing that? You know, why are we putting uh, American flags on the, the vessels of other countries? You know, why are we kind of uh, stretching ourselves so thin and, and potentially um, getting involved in a war between two countries which are essentially both adversaries of the United States, Iran and Iraq? The American assumption had been going into this that the presence of U.S. warships protecting reflagged ships and the presence of a U.S. aircraft carrier in the region would deter the Iranians. We had no prior military experience with the Iranians except for the failed hostage rescue um, operation a number of years before. We had not had any sustained military interactions with the Iranians, and therefore we were kind of like a, a blank slate. We didn't really know what to expect, and we made a lot of assumptions which turned out not to be correct when uh, put up against the test of reality. That took a new turn today when American warships shelled and destroyed two Iranian oil platforms and then raided another. Smoke could be seen for 10 miles, but the message was meant for Tehran, 690 miles away. We were engaged in a low-intensity conflict with Iran throughout this period which occasionally spiked to involve 
direct military engagements? It was in retaliation for the weekend missile attack by Iran on an American flag tanker. Iran is believed to have fired the long-range missile, which last Friday struck the American flag tanker Sea Isle City, wounding many of her crew. And increasingly what you see is this, this conflict zone in which everyone has their finger on the trigger. You know, it's a fog of war, you're at sea, and there's constant risk of miscalculation, there's lack of communication. The Islamic News Agency said the U.S. has become involved in a full-fledged war with Iran. The Iranian president, Ali Khamenei, is quoted as saying, we will retaliate. The United States expanded its rules of engagement to allow U.S. vessels at sea to come to the aid of ships from other countries that were not part of the reflagging operation, but are being attacked by the Iranians. Um, so we're being more proactive in the Gulf in, in terms of our activities. There was a newly arrived ship, the USS Vincennes, coming to the region. Um, there was a new class of ship with a radar system that could see f further out with greater um, resolution than the radar systems that were then used by the ships. Their role generally was to kind of hang back and provide big picture of the um, air defense environment for the other ships that were operating in the region. So on July 3rd, 1988, what happened on July 3rd was a Pakistani tanker had come under attack. The Vincennes sent its helicopter to investigate. As it approached the um, area where the attack was occurring, um, Iranian ships fired warning shots at the helicopter for it to stay away. The helicopter thought they were under attack and reported it as such. The Vincennes then steamed to the aid of its helicopter as well as to join the, the fight. In doing so, they moved into Iranian territorial waters, which was a violation of U.S. rules of engagement. At the same time, while it's doing this and while it's pursuing um, the Iranian warships that were involved in the attack against the Pakistani tanker, an Iranian civilian aircraft takes off from the airport in the city of Bandar Abbas, which is an air, airfield and a port city in the south of Iran, en route to Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. And what would usually be a 30-minute flight, very easy. And as it turns out, it was flying right over the area in which you know, combat was, was going on on the surface. And it takes off. The crew of the Vincennes thought that this civilian jet was actually an Iranian uh, fighter aircraft that was at first gaining altitude, but then diving to attack. They mistook it for an Iranian military aircraft, and they were trying to communicate with it, but they were using military frequency uh, to communicate with this Iranian plane, and they weren't getting any response because this Iranian plane was a civilian airliner, which wasn't on a military frequency. So after numerous attempts of trying to communicate with it, they shot two surface-to-air missiles. Which brought down the Iranian airliner, killing 290 civilians aboard. 
There has been a dramatic and sudden escalation of hostilities in the Persian Gulf involving U.S. forces. There is the possibility that U.S. Navy missiles may have accidentally shot down an Iranian civilian airliner, a civilian airliner carrying nearly 300 people. And, and so I think the fog of war coupled with both a miscalculation, itchy trigger fingers, and an uh, inability to communicate you know, resulted in this terrible tragedy. Throughout the morning, there have been very confused reports as to what actually happened. To uh, this day, the Iranian government believes there was no way this was an accident. ...saying that it was doubtful that the plane that was shot down was an F-14 fighter. Because the plane was clearly marked, its flight pattern was clearly um, civilian aircraft headed to Dubai. There's probably dozens of such flights every day between Bandar Abbas and Dubai. But what the U.S. side um, talks about is the, is the broader context. You know, the, this U.S. warship was actually receiving fire from what they thought were, were Iranian warships. You know, there was constant uh, attacks taking place during that time. And so the United States acknowledged it as a terrible mistake. President Ronald Reagan offered uh, what is known as ex gratia payments, voluntary payments, by the United States government to the families of the victims of Iran Air 655. And this settlement today... Uh, for Iran, these the things are not mistakes. Even if America claimed it was a mistake, um, the, the message that was taken by the Iranian side was that this was a, an act of of open hostility. One of the things you often hear today is that there's a great, there's always a worry about miscalculation in dealing with the Iranians. That there's always the potential for um, inadvertent escalation as a result of a tragic mistake. On the other hand, I would point out that one of the lessons of this conflict in, during the latter phases of the Iran-Iraq war is that actually both sides were pretty good at keeping the level of conflict within a certain kind of relatively narrow band that neither side wanted the conflict to spiral out of control and be, become um, an even larger war. And they, they largely succeeded in that regard. And that's something we should also keep in mind now when I think some of the discussions about the potential for full-blown war between the United States and Iran um, occurring, I think it's very clear that neither side want that kind of war. Several months later, Iran actually signed the peace treaty to end the Iran-Iraq war. So. The shooting down of Flight 655, Iran Air Flight 655, was a terrible tragedy in which civilians were killed. If you look back, though, at the history, it may have been that the Iran-Iraq war might have lasted longer had that terrible incident not taken place. I think one thing the United States realized by the late 1980s was that the Iranian revolution um, was not just going to be a flash-in-the-pan phenomenon. You know, that the revolutionary Islam and the Khomeinist ideology that was born out of the 1979 revolution was going to be an enduring concern. And shortly thereafter, when the Soviet Union collapsed, I think Iran and the threat of radical Islam eclipse communism as kind of challenge or threat number one for the United States. And I think similarly, one of Iran's takeaways from the Iran-Iraq war 
and its interactions with the U.S. military is that you know, the U.S. military's budget is more than 50 times that of Iran's. And so in a head-to-head conventional military matchup, Iran cannot compete with the United States. How it can compete is using essentially asymmetric warfare, whether that's the use of proxies, whether that's the use of mines, you know, in some cases taking hostages, um, having plausible deniability. Iran needed to figure out low-cost, high-impact ways to challenge the United States. And it's really honed that ability over the last four decades. That was Kareem Sajedpour, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and Michael Eisenstadt, director of the Washington Institute's Military and Security Studies program. Coming up, the story of the Shadow War. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Delta. Delta flies to 300 cities around the world. That's 300 cities where people in those 300 cities think they're the only ones who know about that one place. And 300 cities where people miss someone in one of Delta's other 299 cities. Delta isn't flying to 300 cities merely to bring people together, but to show that we're not that far apart in the first place. Delta, keep climbing. While you're sleeping, a whole bunch of news is happening around the world. Up first is the NPR news podcast that gets you caught up on the big news in a small amount of time. Spend about 10 minutes with Up First on weekday mornings from NPR News. I blame myself for what happened. I was a sergeant of the guard. I was ultimately responsible for the security of that BLT that morning. It was 6.30 on a Sunday morning, Beirut, Lebanon. Everybody was asleep. We have a bulletin from the Pentagon on the explosion in Beirut at the U.S. Marines barracks. Then I heard the rev of an engine behind me. A truck loaded with explosives broke through a gate into the lobby of a building in Beirut occupied by Marines. I saw the truck come to a stop, dead center of that lobby. Dead silence in the lobby. You could hear a pin drop. And then the next thing I saw was a bright orange flash. Speeding pickup truck crashed through barriers and exploded in the lobby of the headquarters building where Marines were sleeping. The first thing I said was, son of a bitch, he did it. Causing the four-story structure to collapse. Chunks of concrete and spears of broken glass were hurled hundreds of yards, wounding other Marines. Some of those wounded helped pull their colleagues from the rubble. I remember looking over my shoulder. There was one Marine back here, moaning, help me, help me, God, help me, somebody please help me. The Pentagon now estimates that 120, possibly more, have been killed. The list of survivors, dead and wounded, is still being compiled. 45 of the more critically wounded have been evacuated. Others remain to be evacuated later. Been pretty, pretty hectic trying to uh, just sort things out and see what 
what the total effect of this of this tragedy is going to be. So, in 1983, a truck bombing destroys uh, U.S. military marine barracks in Beirut, which was, I think, the deadliest single-day attack on the U.S. Marines since Iwo Jima. Almost 250 Marines were killed. It was unclear to people who was behind this attack because it was a truck bombing. And, you know, now we've become accustomed to suicide bombings. We read about suicide bombings often in the news. But at that time, that was really a novel attack. It was, I think, widely assumed that Iran was responsible, but Iran shrewdly operated via proxy. They tried not to leave fingerprints. And, you know, the the attack was blamed on a group called Islamic Jihad, which is widely thought to be essentially the, the, the precursor to Lebanese Hezbollah. Hezbollah was created to fight Israel. Whose army invaded and occupied the emergence the of a group called Hezbollah, the Party of God, was essentially a byproduct of two momentous events. One was the 1979 Iranian Revolution, and the other was the 1982 Israeli invasion of Lebanon. And so, as a result of these two things, all of a sudden, the the Shia community in Lebanon had an enormous, very wealthy external patron. It is a secretive, militant movement of the Shia sect of Islam largely funded and armed by Iran. To the US Iran, and many of its after the revolution, Hezbollah defined itself in opposition to the United States and in opposition to Israel. And so you started to see an emergence of Shia radicalism in Lebanon, which Iran was harnessing. And, you know, Lebanon is a country which, in which America doesn't have enormous strategic assets. It's a very small country on the Mediterranean, but it doesn't have oil resources like Saudi Arabia. So the the major reason for America's presence in Lebanon to do peacekeeping and be there as a buffer for our key regional ally, which is Israel. There are no words to properly express our outrage, and I think the outrage of all Americans. After the bombings of the Marine barracks, I think it caused a real debate within the Reagan administration. Uh, Some wanted to pin the blame on Iran. You know, others said there was no clear proof. And I think others also realized that if America were to blame Iran directly, then it would warrant uh, action. You know, you, if, you, if you're going to blame Iran for a massive attack on the U.S. Marines, you can't just sit on your hands afterwards. You have to do something about it. And so I think for that reason, there was actually a reluctance within the Reagan administration to too aggressively blame Iran because America didn't really want to, to fight that war. And in hindsight, there are historians who actually criticize the Reagan administration because they say by not responding to that massive attack by Iran against the U.S. Marines, it essentially emboldened Iran. Iran realized that actually suicide bombings can be quite effective. Truck bombings can be quite effective. And eventually it led to America's pullout from Lebanon. Ambassadors Habib and Draper, who were presently in Beirut, will continue to press in negotiations for the earliest possible total withdrawal of all external forces. Because, you know, Americans, looking at their television, said, said, why are our sons and daughters dying in Beirut, Lebanon? 
What are we doing there? What are our interests? And so I think this is a tactic which Iran has used quite effectively, essentially testing the resolve of the United States and in some ways conducting acts of radicalism and terror which will bring in the American public and the American public, you know, calling for for either restraint or a pullout from the Middle East. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. On my orders... When the Iraq war was launched in 2003, one of the Bush administration's underlying goals for the Iraq war was to create a Shiite democracy in Baghdad, which could then spread to Tehran and undermine the legitimacy of the Iranian regime. And so for that reason, Iran had every incentive to try to sabotage America's efforts in Iraq if they believed that the Iraq war was intended to uh, eventually overthrow the Iranian government. And so for, for that reason, from the beginning of the Iraq war, Iran was somewhat cautious um, the first year or so. But then you started to see Iran ramping up attacks on American troops using proxies, using their Shia militia proxies in Iraq. Iran has essentially tried to franchise the Hezbollah model. You know, I call it the McDonaldization of Hezbollah, taking that Shia militia franchise in Lebanon and using it other other contexts, whether that's to help fight for your ally Bashar Assad in Syria, Iraqi Shia militias to fight against ISIS and project Iranian power in Iraq, and now in Yemen. A second day of airstrikes inside Yemen by Saudi jets bombing Iranian-backed Houthi Shia militias, which have taken control of the country. And when we're talking about countries in the region which are experiencing either civil wars or power vacuums, Iran is able to fill those voids much more effectively with these Shia proxies on the ground. The top U.S. commander for the Middle East worries about what could be Tehran's bid for superpower status. So I think a major asymmetric advantage that Iran has over both the United States and U.S. allies like Saudi Arabia, for example, is that almost all Shia radicals in the region, let's say from India to Lebanon, are willing to go out and kill, if not die, for the Islamic Republic of Iran, whereas almost all Sunni radicals in the Middle East are deathly opposed to the United States, and they want to actually overthrow the government of Saudi Arabia. You know, groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS are Sunni radicals, which are not Saudi Arabia's proxy. They're actually Saudi Arabia's adversary. And so despite the fact that Shia are outnumbered by Sunni by four or five to one in the region, 
Iran has a, a monopoly over Shia radicalism. And increasingly, not only does Iran operate via proxy, but its proxies also have plausible deniability because they're not necessarily doing the fighting themselves. They're using IEDs, they're using drones, they're using mines. So it gives Iran two layers of deniability. Coming up, how one computer virus started a cyber arms race. Support for this podcast comes from REI Co-op, as do the following questions. Where do you see yourself in five miles? What does silence sound like? Can bear spray help you sleep? What's the easiest version of climbing a mountain? Do mosquitoes find me attractive? REI can help you find out for yourself with gear, classes, and 81 years of outdoor experience. Learn more at REI.com. An Iranian facility has been targeted for cyber attack, the second time it's happened in less than a year. Worst cyber attack in history. The race between Iranian officials trying to build their nuclear program and outside forces trying to stop it is getting more intense. This new era of warfare has already begun. We have to go all the way back to around 1996, mid-90s, is when the U.S., started to contemplate the development of offensive um, cyber capabilities. And right around that time, Iran obtained a batch of illicit uranium hexafluoride gas from China. And so that's sort of um, what we can sort of trace the beginnings of the Iranian illicit nuclear program. They, of course, had been watching Iraq prior to that and seeing that Iraq was looking at nuclear capabilities. And of course, Iran and Iraq were longtime enemies. And so Iran's view was if Iraq is looking at obtaining nuclear weapons capability, then we should also be engaging in that as well. So around 2000, Iran broke ground on the facility at Natanz. U.S. intelligence wasn't, you know, 100% positive about what that facility was going to be, but they were watching it. So, February 2003, the United Nations International Atomic Energy Agency, which is the agency that oversees or monitors nuclear programs around the world, IAE inspectors make their first visit to Natanz. And now we return to Iran, where today UN inspectors visited a site used And they discovered that Iran is actually much farther along in the program than anyone suspected. They already had a pilot plant set up at Natanz. They had some centrifuges there that they were beginning to assemble. They had said that they hadn't enriched any batch of uranium hexafluoride gas yet, but that turned out to be incorrect. This first process of enriching that first batch was really the beginning step of having enough uranium hexafluoride gas to build a bomb. This is, this is the initial step of getting them to that bomb. And there was a lot of panic at that point to halt the program until IAEA inspectors could obtain more information. 
So there was a lot of pressure put on Iran to stop everything. The head of the United Nations nuclear watchdog, the IAEA, in talks with Iranian officials in Tehran. And the breakthrough. Iran surprisingly actually agreed. Throughout 2003, 2004, and then something changed in 2005. <laughs> Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was elected president of Iran. And shortly after that, Iran announced that it was done with the cessation agreement and it was no longer going to remain at this stasis position. And it was going to go forward with enriching its first batch of uranium hexafluoride gas. And so you can imagine the panic in Israel uh, when that happens. Jump forward about six months on January, February 2006 now, Iran announces that they have enriched their first batch of uranium hexafluoride gas in that pilot plant at Natanz. And then they announced that they had perfected the enrichment process and they were going to begin installing the first centrifuges in the actual enrichment plants. Israel, of course, was focused on trying to bomb the facility. They'd come to the U.S. for permission from President Bush to launch a strike against the Natanz facility. And the U.S. denied that permission and instead had this alternative plan that they wanted to do. So between February 2006 and February 2007, the U.S. is developing and testing Stuxnet. Stuxnet was what we call a worm. Part of it was virus, part of it was a worm. A worm is malware that will travel from machine to machine without any human interaction. So the initial release, of course, is done by a human. But once a worm finds a vulnerable system, it will infect that system, and then it will search automatically for any other uh, system connected to that system on an internal network or over the Internet and travel to that system and infect that as well. So you've got this Natanz facility that has critical computers that are air-gapped from the Internet. And also, the facility itself is physically protected. They had three outer perimeter security walls. Um, Anti-aircraft guns. Earthen berms entirely hide the facility from view. Around the facility, they had fences, they had ar- guards, armed guards, all of that. So the only way that you could get Stuxnet into where you needed to go was to have someone walk it in, deliver it, either wittingly or unwittingly. And we know that the first version of Stuxnet could only be spread via USB sticks. It's quite possible that the first version of Stuxnet, because it didn't have a lot of spreading capabilities in it, was spread by an inside mole. They probably had close access inside the tons. So 2007, they unleashed that first version of Stuxnet. It was a partnership between the US and Israel. Their aim wasn't to It wasn't catastrophic damage. They didn't want to destroy all of the centrifuges. They wanted to simply stop Iran from obtaining enough enriched uranium gas to have a bomb. Iran had a limited supply of uranium hexafluoride gas that it had purchased from China, and they had a limited supply of materials that they could use to manufacture new centrifuges. And so the goal with Stuxnet was to destroy some of the gas and some of the centrifuges 
uh, in order to buy time for diplomacy and sanctions to catch up. When Stuxnet first gets on to that S7417 PLC, it doesn't cause its sabotage right away. It sits there for a period of time, recording the normal operation of those centrifuges and storing that information. And it just keeps storing and storing for days. And when the sabotage kicks in, it takes that information about the normal operations that it stored and it now feeds that back to the monitoring stations. So while the valves are closed and the pressure is increasing inside the centrifuges, the engineers at the monitoring stations are seeing that everything is normal. All the valves are open, pressure is normal, heat is normal, nothing is wrong. And so they wouldn't have seen the sabotage is happening. What they would have what they would have seen, however, is they would have seen that they were losing gas. They would have seen eventually the, the end result is that the centrifuges start breaking down. But they wouldn't have known if the problem was the machinery itself. Maybe the centrifuges were faulty, the equipment was faulty. That would have been their first focus. And Stuxnet did one other thing. In addition to feeding that false information to the monitoring stations, Stuxnet froze the safety mechanism on the system. So these automated safety mechanisms were designed to detect if the pressure inside the centrifuges increases, if the heat increases, if they start spinning out of control. And if it sees that a system is getting out of a safe condition, it's supposed to automatically shut down those centrifuges to prevent them from being destroyed or ruined. But Stuxnet stopped the safety mechanism from working. So Iran was confused. They didn't know what was happening. Thank you. Tapper. Uh, We have been through a lot together. This is a covert operation, and a covert operation has to be authorized by the sitting president. And the sitting president was leaving. We had an election in 2008... And we see in the code that Stuxnet is designed to halt during this temporary phase of when we, we are losing the sitting president. And in January 2009, Obama is coming into office and he meets with President Bush. And during this period, Bush explains to him this covert operation, which we now know is called Olympic Games. And he explains what's happening and what it's designed to do and tells him that it's not, it hasn't achieved its full purpose yet, and encourages Obama to reauthorize the Olympic Games program. And Obama does. And we already see in January, the attackers are getting prepared to unleash the second version of their assault. And throughout 2009, it's causing it sabotage. And we actually see signs of the sabotage externally, but we don't know what it is. The International Atomic Energy Agency is sending inspectors to the Natanz facility on average about twice a month. And they're sending back reports to their headquarters in Vienna. And those reports are saying that Iran is having problems with its centrifuges. Those inspectors start noticing not just that Iran is having problems, but they're actually removing centrifuges now. So it's not just that they've stopped spinning centrifuges and they've taken gas out of centrifuges. They're actually removing centrifuges from the cascades. And they're sending this back in the report. And that's the first sign that Iran has given up. They don't know what's going on. They're checking the equipment. They're checking everything. And 
Yet Stuxnet continues to operate, and it continues to engage in sabotage. And it's not until June 2010, Stuxnet is unleashed in another round in March and April 2010, and the March version is what got it caught. The March version had multiple spreading mechanisms attached to it, including that worm, and it spread wildly out of control. It started spreading to machines that weren't the targeted machines, spreading to any Windows machine that it can find, initially just in Iran. And it started causing problems on machines in Iran outside of Natanz. Someone in, in Iran who had systems that were kept crashing and rebooting and crashing and rebooting, and they couldn't figure out what was going on. So they contacted their maker of their antivirus software, a company in Belarus called Virus Blockada. And Virus Blockada obtained remote access to some of those systems in Iran that were having problems. And they discovered some suspicious code that they believe was causing the, the machines to reboot, crash and reboot. And so they found this code and they started taking it apart. They immediately discovered that it was malware and that it was designed to spread to any Windows machine. So they contacted Microsoft because it was using a vulnerability in the Windows software. They contacted Microsoft to have that vulnerability patched. And then they had other files that were dropped onto the machine when it was infected, but those files were encrypted and they couldn't decrypt them. And they didn't have a lot of experience taking malware apart. So they made those files available to the rest of the security community. And that's when a company called Symantec stepped in and started reverse engineering that code. They were able to decrypt it and they knew that it was designed for sabotage. Until then, everyone had assumed that this was spyware, that this was conducting espionage. Experts say Stuxnet is an exceptionally sophisticated computer worm that attacks the software used to control automated systems. It's now been found in... So if you can imagine from November 2007 all the way to November 2010, Stuxnet continued to operate unimpeded. Mahmoud Ahmadinejad blamed the Israelis and the U.S., but Iran didn't do what we expected them to do. They didn't go to the United Nations and complain, and they didn't retaliate, which they would have been in position to do legally. International law sort of limits what a nation can do when it's under digital attack like that. It, it says that you can, you can take action to halt a, an attack that's current, but that any sort of retaliation that you do has to be proportional to the attack itself. And so Iran was pretty limited. And also going to the United Nations, Iran is not very powerful in the United Nations. So it knew that it wasn't going to get the support or backing that it needed to punish the U.S. or Israel. They've never seen anything like it. A massive onslaught of cyber attacks on America's biggest banks, slowing down their websites, even forcing some to shut down temporarily costing them money. Stuxnet was proof of concept for any nation to see that digital capabilities like this are a viable alternative. And so what that has done is it's opened up this new kind of warfare where it's lowered the bar of the actors who can engage in it. Senator Joe Lieberman, then chairman of the Homeland Security Committee, said, I think this was done by Iran. It's likely retaliation for previous cyber attacks on Iran and for other things. When you drop a conventional weapon, 
Your victim can't pick up those pieces of the weapon and reconstitute it and send it back at you. The difference with a digital weapon is when you're launching a digital weapon, it's fully contained and all the code is there. And so you're sending the blueprint for the weapon to your victim. And all the victim has to do is reverse engineer that, that weapon in the way that Semantic reverse engineered it and study it and design it in a way that they can send it back to you. And so what we did was we threw stones from a glass house. In the U.S., we've always had this advantage of geography. We have this distance from our adversaries. But digital warfare erases that distance. Now the front line is on businesses and critical infrastructure here. It's brought the war home. That was Kim Zetter. She's a cybersecurity reporter and author of the book, Countdown to Zero Day, Stuxnet and the Launch of the World's First Digital Weapon. That's it for this week's show. I'm Ramtin Arablouei. I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah, and you've been listening to Throughline from NPR. This show was produced by me. And me. And. Jamie York. Jordana Hochman. Lawrence Wu. Lane Kaplan-Levinson. <laughs> Grace Mising Somber. Nigeri Eaton. Original music was produced for this episode by Ramtin and his band, Drop Electric. Thanks also to Aida Porasad. And Anya Grunman. If you like something you heard or you have an idea, please write us at throughline at npr.org or hit us up on Twitter at throughline NPR. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.